Hey, this is Rob, and this is episode 10 of the Folly Coffee Podcast. Let's get it brewing. All right, I am very excited about this episode. I was able to have one of my favorite people in the Twin Cities coffee scenes. This man goes hard in the coffee paint. His name is Barnaby Holmes. And I first met Barnaby when I was building out Folly. I worked at Belcour in YZ. And he was coming in, and the first interaction I had with him, he was our latte art trainer. That is a real thing. Or coffee trainer. So he came in and did the whole program about coffee, serving coffee, what it should taste like, but also trained us on latte art. And I was like, that's a unique position this guy is in. Now, turns out he also does sales for intermixed beverage, uh, espresso services. We go into detail about that. But today's episode is really awesome. We were able to chat about his role at ESI. We briefly touched on like sales and what makes a good salesperson and why does it typically have that negative connotation. And then we also go very deep into his background as well as his experience judging competitions. Uh, Barnaby also, I should mention, was the winner of the Midwest Coffee Tasters Champion, the first annual competition that we put on last year at Folly. Uh, he was our overall winner. So this man is insanely passionate about coffee. You'll also notice he has a bit of an accent. It's because he is from Wales. So how the heck did he end up from Wales to Minneapolis, Minnesota. Well, you're about to find out. Let's get it started. So let's just get right into it. Uh, I'll do the intro beforehand so we don't even have to worry about doing the awkward in-person intro. Uh, so introduce yourself, introduce your background, and I'll just let you take it. Awesome. Um, my name is Barnaby, Barnaby Holmes. Um, I am from Wales, which is the cool appendage to the left of England, if you didn't know, um, with a bit that sticks off. Um, and... I am now living in Minneapolis. I've been here for like two and a half years, coming up to two and a half years. Um, and I currently work at Intermix Beverage and Espresso Services, or ESI. Um, we're a distributor based in Northeast Minneapolis. Um, we distribute for Intelligentsia Coffee. We distribute for Peace Coffee, um, European Roastery, and also Lavazza. And then ESI is equipment. So we also sell and distribute equipment and service as well. So we kind of have everything covered in terms of coffee um, we also do tea and everything else that goes with it my role with the company um, I'm a sales rep product sales representative and I'm also the lead trainer there as well so I do a lot of the wholesale education um, I also dabble a bit in social media but I think that's probably because I'm the only one who knows how to use Instagram <laughs> so that was kind of forced upon me I don't have a background in that at all my background is in coffee um, specifically coffee within a food service environment I've that's pretty much where I've always worked um, and all the restaurants and places that I've worked, I've always kind of introduced to like a third wave, for want of a better term, craft coffee area to that restaurant purely because that's my hobby. And it was kind of my relaxation apart from the stresses of working in a restaurant. And so when you first started working there, was that one of the intentions of bringing you in was, hey, this third wave seems to be taking off. We need someone to launch that. Or did you start working there and introduce them to third wave? So funny, actually, I think... My accent aside, although I think that was part of it, they wanted a Welshman because every business should have a Welshman working for them. Um, no, they were aware that craft coffee had grown substantially to the point where they needed to be playing in that area. And the company has been around since 1987 or 89, I always forget, 89, I think. Um, 
and so they had a very strong presence within the Twin Cities um, in terms of equipment and in terms of product. But I guess for want of a better term, it was predominantly second wave. Um, and they wanted to explore the third wave field because we had or they had um, the ability to serve the third wave field in terms of service, in terms of equipment, where they were a distributor for Lamazoko espresso machines. Um, and they had intentions of bringing on coffee. At that point, they weren't distributing peace. They weren't distributing intelligentsia. Um, and so I applied for a job there, not the job that I actually got in the end. I applied for a job there at that time. And I think it was just kind of like a, an aligning of the stars, so to speak. You know how it is. It was just kind of meant to be because it, I walked in there with a third wave background in food service. They operate in food service circles and they were looking to explore the third wave. Plus I was Welsh. So let's go back to that. You say you have experience in third wave food service, oh, yeah. but you're coming from Wales yep. to end up in Minneapolis, yep. Minnesota. <laughs> How the heck does that happen? Actually, I still kind of know, but I don't really know. Like who doesn't end up in Minneapolis, Minnesota yeah. eventually at some point? You just, you're like, I need to go somewhere with a cool accent to the worst accent in p perhaps the world. Definitely the U it's either Boston or Minnesota. You, for worst I think that is unfair. I think people in Minnesota are too down on their accent. <laughs> well, that's because we're in the cities. You go out, man. It's yeah, but it is pretty crazy. Yeah. I watched a lot of Fargo and like making a murderer and stuff to try and get a hang on the accent. And it is it is pretty crazy. Yeah. Although the Welsh accent echoes it a bit. We kind of like a oohs as well. <laughs> uh, so, ooh, yeah. so, you're in, so two and a half years ago, you say you moved yeah. to Minneapolis. Is that straight from Wales? Straight from Wales. And so how did that happen? My wife imported me. Hmm. Uh, my wife is from Minneapolis originally. She was born here, but she moved all over the place, Texas. Um, and then her family live in Eau Claire now. So about two hours away, just in Wisconsin. Um, but she was living in Germany and Hungary. And then she ended up studying in Wales. Um, and we actually met in college in Wales. But I didn't go back to college till I was 30. She was a couple of years younger than me. Um, we met, got married in Wales. And then it was kind of like a toss up. Does she apply for residency in Wales or do I apply to come back over here and I've lived there my entire life and I love it I'm a proud Welshman um, I love my country I love everything to do with it but at the same time I was also ready for a new experience I'm pretty easygoing pretty laid back so it wasn't a big jump for me to say yeah yeah let's go let's go to the states I'd never heard of Minneapolis at that point um, I'd heard of Minneapolis, but I didn't really know much about it. Right. Probably Prince. Yeah. Which, point to Minnesota on a map, probably wouldn't be able to. No. <laughs> no, I wouldn't have a clue. Um, and so, yeah, we made the call to come over here at that point. I'll be very honest, I had no intention of working in coffee. Um, so you, you weren't working in coffee at that point? At that point, point I, was, I was studying for my master's whilst managing a restaurant. And, I, I, and then I finished my master's a year before Courtney. So what she, kind of a restaurant was it? So it's uh, it was like... Uh, casual. It was a casual dining restaurant. It was 125 seats, 125 covers. Um, but we also did cocktails, and then we also had a 300 capacity cocktail bar on the other side of the building. So it was a, it was a beast. And you, as a manager, you had a different hat on at every point. But we also opened at 7 a.m. every morning, and we were a coffee shop from 7 a.m. to 10 or 11. Um, it was coffee focused, and we had at one point definitely the best coffee in Swansea. Um, I don't say that modestly. We just did. It was something that I really focused on. Um, we were sourcing our coffee from Clifton Coffee, who are based in Bristol. Clifton do a fantastic job. Um, and they also helped us out with equipment as well. And mentorship within coffee, like teaching people, has always been a real passion for me. Like I, I get the most satisfaction from being able to talk about things that I enjoy. And I just enjoy coffee. Espresso specifically is my background. When I say coffee in terms of Wales, it, it just means espresso. And... 
being able to teach people who didn't have a background in coffee. So that was bartenders, that was servers, um, some of the management team as well. It was a real passion of mine. And through that process, I didn't aim to have the best coffee in Swansea. We just managed, we just got to that point. Um, and so, yeah, I was managing that full time, but I have an educational background in Welsh literature. I've got a master's in Welsh literature, which is really useful in Minnesota. <laughs> <laughs> All those Welsh writers. A major advantage in selling coffee day to day in Minneapolis. Yeah, never a conversation doesn't pass without me bringing up Dylan Thomas for no reason <laughs> other than I can. Um, in coffee conversation, it's fantastic. So I didn't, well, when we moved up here, I had no, just, I thought I was going to lecture. So I was looking at maybe moving into education. I had my master's, I was exploring PhDs potentially and kind of going down that route. Um, but we landed here. We were living in Eau Claire with my in-laws for a month. During that period, our plan, Courtney and I, was to live in Eau Claire. We had no intention of coming to the Twin Cities, actually. Um, we were looking at house prices there, and I got a job in a cafe in Eau Claire called ECDC. I'm familiar. Eau Claire, downtown coffee. Respect. Mm -hmm. Shout out to them. I didn't know uh, there. Yeah, I worked there for 10 days. That's a great... <laughs> um, <laughs> That's I didn't know. <laughs> I have to say, it was a wonderful 10 days, and they gave me a glowing recommendation when I left. I, I brought a lot of things to them, I like to think. And likewise, I learned a lot from them. That was in 10 days, I learned a lot about American coffee, i.e. drip coffee, which was foreign to me, literally, quite literally. Yeah. Um, well, who they serve? Ruby, right? Um, at, at, that, at that point, it was Tiny Footprint. Okay. It was purely Tiny Footprint. Mm -hmm. um, they had guests coming in, so they had Ruby on pour over mm -hmm. occasionally. I think they now have Ruby alongside Tiny. I think so. I think so. Um, but I learned quite a lot just in that 10-day period. Um, but we were planning on staying in Eau Claire, but my wife got offered a job in Minneapolis that she could not turn down. And so in the space of a month, we were living in Minneapolis. And so at that point, I was applying, looking for jobs. And I was like, well, what can I do? I can't just go into PhD right now. So I'm just going to find a job in a cafe somewhere. Because that's a cool thing about being a barista is that you can just find a job. Can like anywhere. Pretty much. I mean, it's a really cool job. I always tell people that when they're thinking about it as a career. Um, and so I just started looking for coffee jobs, as you do on Indeed. And this job for field service representative came up at Intermix Beverage. Long story short, I applied for that, went through an interview process, one, two, three, and it, I guess I was a little overqualified in terms of my background, in terms of management, and in terms of my knowledge, um, and they just felt that I would be suitable for a sales role. I had zero experience in sales. I had the natural inclination to sales that I think a lot of people do, is that if you say sales, they sort of go, <gasps> like it's almost a dirty word. It's a 100% a dirty <laughs> word. People tell me they're like, oh, I didn't want to be too salesy. I didn't want to be salesy. I'm like, you kidding me? It's like, I mean, this is a topic. If you want to, we can get onto this because this is something that I have. I'm not going to say I have a bee in my bonnet about it, but like I love sales now and I'm, a passionate advocate for sales within coffee specifically but just in general when it's done well when it's done correctly mm -hmm. i think it's i think it's a it's a very positive thing so why do you think sales has such a negative connotation because it totally does i and, know I, and yeah. no one will ever try you, you even see within businesses they try to call their sales reps like when i was at sam adams i was a brewery representative yep. and it's like ooh, brewery <laughs> rep that's cool no like more and more companies will not call their sales reps sales yeah. reps because if you tell someone you're a sales rep, you're probably going to get denied because that has a negative connotation. So why, why do you think that is? I think I think we intrinsically, we all have an idea of that. And that's because of bad sales reps, right? Yeah. That's, there are bad sales people out there. And what do I mean by that? What I mean is they're probably good at selling stuff. 
but they're probably good at selling the wrong thing to the wrong person. I have had a myriad of jobs in my younger years, in my 20s. I had some jobs that lasted no more than a week and it was telesales. I was selling mobile phones mm. over the phone to people. And they told us in the training to this job, realistically, the only people who will buy these from you are the elderly and the infirm. They told us that in training, okay? <laughs> So I always wonder if they're explicit about that. I'm like, at that point, I should have been like, do you know what? I don't think this is for me, yeah. but I needed the money. So I did seven days and then I went, do you know what? Yeah, this like, is What day of the week do I get paid? This is illegal, probably. I'm not sure. It's very dubious, ethically speaking. And I think that's an extreme, but I give that example as an extreme because I know from talking to my team who I work with now, who are wonderful. I will say this wholeheartedly. Um, I work with some wonderful, wonderful people and we approach sales from a very good place. And they talk about people who were in my role before me, like a couple of years before me. They, Intermixed Beverage, went down the route of hiring salespeople. So people with a sales background, experience of selling a multitude of different things, thinking that they would then teach them the coffee side of things because that's the easy part, okay? What they found was these people were indeed very good at selling, but they had not they didn't have an interest in selling the correct thing. So essentially the approach they were taking was a non-consultative approach. They were just taking a hard sales approach. So they would sell probably the most expensive item or the one with the biggest margin that they could to anyone who would be willing to sign that paper and give them the money. And that's no disrespect to those individuals. That's their background. That's what they do. I, I get that. And I think when we look at sales outside of coffee, if we think of things like insurance, or that we can think of a, a number of, people who try and sell us stuff all of the time and we know if we're being sold the wrong thing okay well i think that's probably to answer your question i think that's probably the reason why sales has a bad reputation though has a bad connotation to the word is that we instinctively associate the word sales with a pushy salesman or a pushy salesperson someone who is just like hey how are you you want to buy this i can get you three of them it's a great price yeah. you know it's that kind yeah. of thing and we just instinctively hear sales associated with that and 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 the natural reaction is to kind of is to kind of just pull away from it and think right. oh no what i've come to learn is that good sales is a very positive thing and what do i mean by good sales i mean that I love coffee. I will, we're here having a conversation about coffee and I will talk about it all day with anyone. My job means that every day that I go into work, I get to talk about coffee with people. Eh? I'll, when I'm, if I go out on cold calls, I don't go in there with samples and price lists and being like, hey, how much are you paying for your oat milk? I'm gonna I do this or that. I literally just go into a place and I just talk to them about what they're doing. Right? I just talk to them about the coffee they're doing, the equipment they have. I talk to them about their job as a whole. And if there's anywhere where I think I can help them, which is to say that I've got a product available to me that I feel will be um, a step up in terms of quality, or perhaps it will help their margin, or there's equipment that I think, hey, what you've got is great. It might be the top of the range, but for your situation, it doesn't really make sense. Like, you know, the Lamazoko GB5s in a food service environment, we see quite a lot of that. That doesn't make sense for a lot of places because they've got such a high turnover of staff that it's just not going to, it's not the right piece of equipment to go there. I can talk to them about that and I can maybe have a conversation and I won't go and try and sell them something new, but I'll explain to them, in my opinion, how I think I can help them. And typically what I found is people are very receptive to having a conversation with someone who's got A, a passion and B, some knowledge. Um, 
And so I love my job and I love that I'm in sales because it allows me to help people. And if you're good at sales, that's all you're doing is helping people get the right thing for them. Yeah. Yeah, that's, uh, there's an episode I recorded that will be coming out before this so I can reference it where I go through my favorite business books. And uh, one that was recommended to me that I really like is called The Challenger. And that's the whole idea is that uh, the best sales reps are not the ones that save them the most money. It's not the ones where they're their best friend or they have the best relationship or just they see them the most. Because mm-hmm. I think that's another one that, oh, well, I just got to be in there all the time. So they see me and we're best friends. It's the ones that are really that consultative and challenge what they're currently doing, but don't challenge it from a place of I'm better than you. It's a challenge of if you're selling something, you probably know more about that thing mm-hmm. than the business owner, which sounds weird because you're like, well, if they own the business, wouldn't they know more about it? But you're like, but just coffees. So, so even a cafe, you think that coffee is everything, but it's just not. And so they're thinking about a thousand different things. But if you're thinking about just serving coffee that and, and you know more about that and you can look at their business and have a probably pretty good idea of what their clientele is based on the area, based on mm-hmm. how they're marketing, based on what they're serving. And you can have a solution for them that they've never thought of. Like that to me is what selling really is like yeah. the best sales reps. And even if you're not a sales rep or so me, I'm not technically a sales rep, but I'm definitely selling all the time. Uh-huh. Like I'm not going to talk to someone unless I think Folly Coffee would be a good fit. Now, you have a huge portfolio of things, and so you have a unique opportunity to be able to find the best fit for someone. And so my approach to it is only finding people where having a really high-end, higher-quality coffee makes sense. And and that's interesting. Well, I mean, you you want to – obviously, you want to sell Folly Coffee. You you need to sell Folly Coffee. But you also understand that if you sell Folly to the wrong places, that in the long term will be detrimental to you. So in the short term you get to tick that box and be like hey such and such is doing folly but if they have a bad experience with folly that is bad for you in the long run right. and so it's being smart yeah and it's helping the right people with the right tool yeah and it's it, you find that the best sales reps are the one who genuinely love what they're selling yeah. and that's something i learned very quickly is like, yeah. don't sell something unless or don't don't start a bit I, I i'm pretty adamant about this and some people disagree but it's like if you're gonna start a business it should not be in something that you just think is the best way to make money no. if you don't care about the product because that selling process you're gonna end up leaning towards that whole sell it to anyone I can and see what sticks the, mm-hmm. the, the way you were telemarketing. Yeah. Just sell as many of the phones. We don't care yep. if they want it or not. Yep. So, so that's interesting. And so I want to go back to when you're in Wales at, the, yeah. at, at this restaurant. Yeah. Um, was that your first exposure to like better coffee? Because um, I'm trying, I'm trying yeah. to, sk- I'm trying to go back. Everybody's well, got that moment or a period of time where you're like, it was right then that I was like, I didn't know about this until then. When was that moment for you? Some people call it the God Cup or the God yeah. Shot. Um, so my my background in coffee goes way back. So like showing my age, um, my background in coffee goes back to two thousand and three. Um, how deep do you want to get? I don't want to get. I won't get too deep. But essentially, I from the age of like sixteen to like twenty two, twenty three, I basically bummed around. Like I I dropped out of school at sixteen. Um, didn't really have. I didn't have a trajectory. I was kind of. I had a brain, but I didn't have the ability to focus on one thing. And so I just did some I did stupid stuff that kids do. You know what I mean? Just bummed around, smoked too much weed, and just kind of didn't know what to do with my life, quite truthfully. And I got to like 21, 22, and just down the road from where I lived my whole life, I lived on the coast in a very touristy area. Um, there was an Italian restaurant, an Italian cafe. It's a rest- cafe bar. 
And it was during the heat point, during the peak of summer, um, it had the capacity to seat around 300 people, but it had outdoor seating for another 150, 200. And then there was a huge car park, the parking lot that just went miles and it would be full of cars and everybody drinking coffee and eating ice cream in their car. So it had the capacity essentially for a thousand people to be there. And I don't know why, but one day I woke up and was just like, I need to get a job, like a job job. And I went down, I put on a suit and tie, believe it or not. <laughs> I don't even own a suit now. Right? <laughs> I put on a suit and tie and walked 150 yards down the road and went into this place that I'd never been into before because this was a tourist trap. Ha- asked for a manager, had a chat. They gave me a form. They were like, we're hiring people for the summer. This was maybe beginning of July. Um, and long and the short of it, they gave me a week trial. I'd never worked on a bar before. I'd never pulled a pint. I'd never made espresso. I didn't even, I'd never tasted espresso at that point. To me at that point, coffee in the UK was instant. So like free freeze ground that you would just add hot water to, two sugars. Um, that's all I knew coffee to be and I hated it. But I got a job in this bar. So I worked a couple of shifts and it transpired later on. I worked there for three or four years, but it transpired later on that generally speaking, people would either last a week and just walk out or they would last there for years. They had two fully manual espresso machines on the bar, four group espresso machines on the bar. And so you would have four baristas at the peak service, four baristas working, and you would have two groups and one steam hum to yourself. And on your average summer day, you would be making between five to 700 drinks a day. <laughs> That's like peak Starbucks volume. I mean, and it's fully manual, like fully lever machines. Yeah. And I learned on that. So what about that made you like coffee? Because anyone else... So here's the thing. People would leave, right? Because they they were like, this is fully manual machine. We would would be in work... Honestly, you'd be in at 7.30 in the morning and you would either work the morning or the evening or you would work an AFD, which is an all-flipping day. And you would work from 8 a.m. and it would be open till 12 p.m. at night because of the restaurant. And we would do that shift, 8 a.m. to 12 p.m. And you would occasionally get a break for food if you could. Otherwise... You just power through. So why did I like that? I went from being like this stoner that just couldn't motivate himself to get out of the house, right? And I think about that quite often because I fell in love with it. I fell in love with the process of making it before I fell in love with the flavor of it. And I, I as an individual, I don't seem to master anything particularly, but I'm pretty good at a lot of things. I found that out about myself. And I think coffee and specifically espresso... It was latte art that brought me into it. It was the process of making coffee. So the scientific process of brewing it and then bringing a little creativity to it. And this is back before the internet. I mean, not before the internet, <laughs> but like, but it's back before the internet was in your pocket. Yeah. It's way before Instagram. It's way yeah. before YouTube. We were on dial-up. Social media. This is sure. dial-up, right? Yeah. This is like, so like, beep, 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 you know, 15 minutes for a page to load yeah. kind of stuff. So we didn't know what latte art was. We had no point of reference outside of what was in Swansea. And at that point, there was zero in terms of specialty coffee or anything close to that. Um, and so all we had was ourselves. And what would happen is the four baristas who would be working, we would get competitive. It was the only way we got through the day is that we would, someone would, I saw, it was a guy called Dylan, actually. He was a manager who was there for maybe six months, but he could do this very basic, what we now call a monk's head, just like a white dot, Mm -hmm. but it was so shiny and so like clean and crisp that we all saw that and we were just making these big bubbly foamy cups of rubbish, you know, of crap. And we would look at that and be like, whoa, like, how do you do that? And so he would kind of show you and we couldn't do it, but eventually we kind of did. And then we kind of a little bit further and I learned how to do a heart. I taught myself how to do a heart. And from there, I would start to knock out rosettas. 
And then it became competitive. So when we did something good, you'd catch the other baristas' attentions and be like, show them that coffee. And then they would be like, oh, and then they would do theirs. And what happened is over the space of six months, we just got good. We got really good. And every day we came into work, it was trying to be better than the other baristas. Friendly, but trying to be... And in that process, we also got good at making good espresso because we needed that crema to be really good. And so we just got very good at the process of making very, very high-end coffee with the lowest quality ingredients. I mean, these beans were brandless. They came in just these red bags. I've got no idea where they came from. They were probably swept up off the floor somewhere. Um, and I just fell in love with the process of making it. And I did that for three to four years and then kind of moved on to another Italian-style bar. Um, and the coffee was illy, so it was kind of a step up of what I was using before. And my skills at that point were that I knew how to dial in, although I wasn't using scales, I wasn't using a recipe, I just intrinsically understood the dial-in process and could taste and adjust according to that. Um, and so I basically worked up until 2010, from 2003 to 2010, I would work in restaurants, but just always be on the coffee side of things. And I would work in different positions within the restaurant management team, but always take control of the coffee and do the mentorship and the training of everybody involved in coffee. So I guess my godlike moment in terms of coffee wasn't so much the cup as opposed to the process of making it. And that, oh, that's really honestly, to this day, like I, in terms of sensory, like in terms of evaluating on flavor, other than in, I would like espresso, and I would be able to sense to evaluate it from a sensory perspective in terms of the dial-in, like how to make my adjustments. But in terms of just evaluating it for purely for the taste, I would say that I didn't really develop that too much until this the last restaurant that I managed um, in, in Wales before moving here. So I started there in 2015. That was probably my first exposure to high-end, what we would call third wave, but yeah. you know, but craft coffee, I suppose. So when you went from that restaurant to the one with, was it Clifton? Is yeah, it was Clifton. So what kind of sensation or what did you notice about the taste difference between these low-grade beans yeah. and you're in love with the process and everything about coffee is cool, not really thinking about much how it tastes. What hit you where you began to fall in love with third wave? Because I think it's yeah. it's likely that you could have just been like, I don't get it. I, yeah. I just still like latte art. That's what I want. I I, rem I remember it quite, um, quite vividly, actually. It was the unusual acidity at the front end of the espresso shot. I hadn't experienced that before. Um, I went to dial in, I knew the setup, like I, I did a trial shift at Brewstone, which was the name of the restaurant that I was I was managing at. I did a trial shift there um, and they, they didn't test me, but they were like, please like dial in some shots, like have a, have a taste. So I dialed in this shot, well, I pulled a shot and tasted it. And I was just like, I was hit with this acidity. It wasn't unpleasant, but it was unexpected. And then I got the familiar back end, but there was a sweetness in the middle there, which I think I've heard you talk about before. And it's like that that berry sweetness, which is, it wasn't a natural. It was actually in El Salvador, but it was it was a single origin from El Salvador. Um, but it was just unusual to me. And so I started to kind of open my eyes a little bit. And then we started playing with single origin coffees. So then I was just like, huh. Well, I went on the Clifton website and was like, well, what have you got? there and so that El Salvador I think we moved on to after that there was a Guatemala and we were just pulling all these single origin espresso shots to this day I am now a single origin espresso freak like mm -hmm. I understand why we have blends I understand the financial reasoning behind blends for, for want of a better term um, but I would I'm a huge advocate for single origin on, on espresso and standing behind that mm. um, yeah that was probably where I kind of opened my eyes and I was like okay like I get the sensory side of things now. So not only am I enjoying the process of it, but I'm now also enjoying the flavor. And I was able to then 
uh, pass that on to my team. So I was then able to be like, hey, so we're going to make great coffee. We're going to make great latte art. And latte art was still my hook. I could get, I had a, I had a bartender who'd been a bartender for 10 years and hated making coffee. And he wanted to leave Brewstone because he didn't want to have to deal with the coffee side of things. And then I trained another bartender how to make latte art and he loved it. Like he just got it. One of those guys, I've trained a few people like that who just went bang and they were amazing at it. Um, and Pinky is this bartender's name. He's a great guy. Um, and he saw this other guy making latte art and he was like, can you show me how to do that? Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, I can show you how to do that. We'll, we'll go with that. And then within a couple of months, they were like, they both wanted to be making coffee, not making cocktails because they were just yeah. pushing each other. Well, that's the funny thing about latte art is it's this weird like thing that you can absolutely compete with yourself, even if no one else cares around you. Because yeah. even when I was working uh, as a barista, I was like, I'm only doing this until I don't have to do this when Folly's off the sure. ground. And no one around me cared about latte art, really, because we're all to-go cups mm -hmm. at El Cour, where, where you trained me and I worked. And so you're doing latte art and then slapping a to-go cup yeah. on it. But I, it was the only thing that got me through a lot of those days. And it's, it's in my latte art trainings that I do now. And I, I do latte art trainings, although hands up, like I, my latte art is not what it was at all. And I'm, I'm fine with that. But I make a point of like when I speak to management prior to the training, if I'm not training the management team, I kind of explain to them that latte art is, for me, from my perspective more for the barista than it is for your customer. Um, we often talk about it like it's the garnish on a cocktail. And to that extent, it's true. Like in terms of a coffee, it doesn't make a bad coffee good. So it's kind of like you know, a garnish on a bad tasting cocktail isn't going to make that cocktail taste good. But when you get your barista team engaged with latte art, they suddenly become engaged with the process of making coffee or making espresso-based drinks as a whole. Yeah. And it becomes the garnish that they really focus on. But I make damn sure that they they're not making latte art at the expense of bad espresso. Yeah. To get to this latte art over here, to get to this swan, you need to be pulling great espresso shots. And we work through it that way. Um, and generally, I find that management start to understand that. And yeah. suddenly they start to really embrace latte art as being kind of important because when their barista is making good latte art, they can be fairly safe in, in the knowledge that the barista is making good drinks as a whole. So that's an interesting point that um, latte art is so not, it's not so much about that if there's an awesome picture on it that this mm -hmm. is going to taste great, but it, it does show that the, the process is good. Yeah. So at the very least, I don't know what the milk is, I don't know what the coffee yep. is, but if you're able to at least see contrast in the milk mm -hmm. and the coffee that this process is good and it's on point. That's what I always look for when I, when I go somewhere and I order, if I order a latte and I know nothing about, the, you know, it's unlikely I know nothing, but if I know nothing about uh, the equipment or the coffee or even the baristas or anything like that and I get served a latte, what I'm looking for is contrast between white and, and crema. I'm not, the abstract nature of that white shape means nothing to me at that point. Um, it tells me that if, as long as there's white contrast uh, against crema, it tells me that my barista has a decent idea how to steam, a decent idea of how to pour. It tells me they're not going to win the Latte Art World Championships anytime soon, but that's cool, okay? But it tells me that my barista's taking care or trying to take care in what they're doing. And so from a customer's perspective, I'm going to care a little bit as well. Yeah, I always, in my trainings, I probably said this to you, but I equate it to a chef serving you two plates of identical food, but one is beautifully laid out with lovely presentation and one's just thrown haphazardly onto the plate. They might taste the same, but you instinctively understand where the care and the love went and you'll intrinsically love that a little bit more as well. And latte art is that. It, it, it brings customers back in because they see that the barista is taking an effort, making an effort, and so they're more likely to come back. Yeah, and... Do you, what do you, with the advent of social media, obviously playing a huge part into the specialty coffee community, this is something that I say is that to me, 
most people, when they say I love coffee, mm-hmm. you'll find this what they actually like is espresso drinks, yeah. espresso milk drinks. And you immediately sound like a snob when you try to correct anyone on that. Because when I say I love great coffee, I'm talking black coffee yeah. or black espresso. Yeah. Most people, when they say, and I, I don't know even what I mean when I say most, a lot of people say, I love coffee. What do you like? I like a really good latte. And mm-hmm. what are your thoughts on that? Uh, in terms of like coffee versus espresso milk drinks, what do you drink? Like, what are you passionate about? So you have an interesting perspective because you love the process. Yeah, you love doing it. Do you yeah. love drinking it? Yes, but I will say now my go-to is drip. But I did that because I wanted to learn. And so when I first moved here, it took me maybe three, four months of drinking drip coffee before I started to really understand the intricacies. So in the UK, pour over existed. Like, so there was drip coffee, but only in a pour over state, but not in Wales. Not, well, maybe in Cardiff, um, but not in Swansea. Um, and then one cafe opened not long before I left, but the, I never had, I tried it once or twice and never had anything that got me as excited as espresso. I really loved the intensity of espresso and I was able to really pick out the sensory notes in espresso by, by the time of me leaving and coming here. So, now, my go-to, I was in Penny's today down in Wyzetta and I had a cup of light drip coffee. But that was because I kind of forced myself to learn that. So I just drank it and drank it and drank it until one day I kind of went, oh yeah, oh yeah, I get that. I get that. That's really nice. Well, it's, you know? it's interesting. My take on it is that in the US, I think the reason espresso isn't more popular is because of the ceremony of drinking it. Now, I, I haven't been to Italy as a coffee drinker, mm-hmm. and but what I'm told is that the culture over there is you get espresso for here, and you drink it very quickly in yep. the morning, and that's part of what you do. Whereas in the U.S., it seems like most coffee in the morning is a to-go cup, and I want it as big as possible, yep. not even for the taste, but because I want something to do in my car ride. One of my, <laughs> one of my favorite things I read about was uh, McDonald's was doing research on the formulation of their milkshakes, or mm-hmm. like... How do we like? How thick do we make it? How sweet do we make it? How easy should it be to drink? Should it yeah. be difficult? And what they found is that it depended on the time of the day. So what they do is in the morning, they're like, "We need our milkshake." Which again, a milkshake in the morning is a McDonald's. I, I've seen it. Yeah. <laughs> so in the morning, they want them to be really thick and hard to drink, so that people it takes them their full car ride to drink it wherever they're going. Mm-hmm. In the afternoons, they make them thinner so they're easy to drink and you can just consume it quickly yeah and i think that plays directly into what's happening in coffee is people don't even think about the flavor they they don't want espresso straight black espresso because it's an ounce and a half it's gone it's gone and you drink it in 10 seconds and Mm -hmm. then it's done and you're like oh that's my morning treat and it's gone already whereas a large coffee i think it's why Caribou, Starbucks, all these places don't even have for here cups is because they know what their business is. And it, it is a shame. And I always encourage people to get espresso. And what, what I do that I always encourage people to do is, uh, I think Spy House does a great job. They call it the hit and run. Yep. Um, people have different names for it. But you get a shot of espresso for here and then a coffee to go. Because yep. espresso doesn't take too long to prepare. You can drink it while you're there, appreciate it. And then you still have your like activity in the car. Now, some people, yep. that's too much coffee. But <laughs> That it's in- interesting coming from Europe that espresso is just ubiquitous over there. Yeah. It's, it's what people drink. It's what you do. Yeah, it's, it is. It is when I, I still catch myself. I still call espresso coffee. 
I mean, it, technically it is. It's it, all, is. it is all coffee, right? It's just a brewing process. So we really should be talking about drip and espresso and making that distinction. It's just that here, coffee means drip, and in Europe, coffee means espresso, right? So it's all, all coffee. I mean... I think we could unpack a lot of what you just yeah. said there because I think you hit on so many so many things. People, I think that dips into people not caring necessarily about coffee for the flavor, like you said, um, just really approaching it as their caffeine hit and the and, and part of the habitual ceremony of the morning. You know, they just need their coffee. Yeah, they need their coffee and they don't really care what it tastes like. And I'm always on board with that because that's cool. Like, however you have your coffee is totally cool. It's just a drink. It's just coffee. It's just bean juice. It doesn't matter, really, okay? Because I'm a geek about it, because you're a geek about it. That's cool. And we're going to tell everybody about our geekery, right? We're going to talk about it to anyone who will give us the time of day to listen. But what I'm not going to do is if they don't care, I'm not going to keep talking at them about it and tell them, oh, well, what you're doing is wrong, yeah. right? Because, what? no, what you're doing is right for you. That's totally cool. But if you want to try this uh, espresso, I can talk to you about it in a way that you may not like it, but at least you'll understand why I'm geeky about it. Yeah. Um, and to go into something else that I do, I do coffee judging. Mm -hmm. So uh, I, I judge competitions. And I will say that competition judging has helped me massively. So I've been pouring espresso or making espresso since 2003. And I've gained an understanding of what that should taste like. I've gained an understanding of how I want it to taste and to dial in to taste. I've been able to train people in that. And I've been able to, over time, give them taste of that too, so that they can do the same. Then... In recent times, I kind of brought scale into the equation and I brew rate, understand brew ratio and I, I can then train a lot easier having those numbers. But what I didn't have and I wasn't aware that I didn't have is I didn't have a particularly effective vocabulary to talk about the experience of drinking my espresso. Huh. And when I got into judging, um, which was not that long ago, like 18 months ago, the biggest thing, the number one takeaway that has helped me massively in my in my coffee career is is a vocabulary and is learning a vocabulary to discuss coffee or espresso um and that's allowed me to really communicate what it is that i'm experiencing and i think that really helps when we're talking to people who aren't coffee geeks is bringing in a language that they can understand um yeah. you made you kind of covered this a little bit on the podcast that you did about yeah. what specialty coffee roasters are doing wrong or what they should do what better. What we can do better. What we yeah. can do better. And I think it's a little bit of a clickbaity title. But yeah, that, that's yeah big, but it, it works because it's like, a big I, part of it. I clicked that bait um and, and I listened to it. And I think you made some very interesting points in there. And I think vocabulary is key. Um it's not alienating. We want vocabulary to be inclusive. And so that's using words that people understand. Mm -hmm. And I think Something as simple as extraction, I found in my in my training. When I train people, I would automatically just talk about extraction. So over extraction, under extraction. Um, and I understand what extraction means. You do. And I'm sure a lot of people do. But not everybody necessarily understands what we mean by that. But if I use the word dissolve, people can understand dissolve because we understand what that means. We stir sugar in hot water and it dissolves. We stir things in... And, it's not exactly the same. I get that. We can be pedantic about the differences. But if I use the word extraction and then say, or dissolve, and we're just going to dissolve this coffee in this much hot water, people are like, oh, okay. Yeah, and I think it's funny because with coffee, people with extraction, they're like, I don't, you've lost me here. Yeah. But if you were to compare it to a tea, I'd be mm -hmm. like, you know how you steep tea? Mm -hmm. The extraction process is the flavor compounds of that tea being extracted yeah. from it. It's not dissolving into it. And they're like, yeah, that makes sense. And then you try to be like, Coffee's like that too. Like, and they're like, I don't get it. Um, 
I'm going to pause it for just a second. I'm dying. All right, backing right into it. Oh, I, I was in the sauna, so I was dying. Okay, so um, we're talking about how to be more approachable to people, but I want to go back because you said something that might raise an eyebrow of somebody that doesn't know it exists. Mm-hmm. You're a barista, or you're a, a competition judge. Yeah. Which competitions are you referring to? How did you get into it? And what made you decide to want to do it in the first place? Uh, yeah. Um, competition. So I'm a judge for the um, U.S. Barista Championships, uh, USBC, which is now called the U.S. Coffee Championships. Um, U.S. Coffee Championships as a whole has, and I always forget one, but let's get it. So it has barista, it has roaster, it has cup taster, it has coffee and good spirits. And it has Bruce. brewers. Yeah. Thank you very much. I got them all. Awesome. Um, and I um, am a judge for the barista competition. Um, and I started that in August last year. I did, I judged the first prelim, which was in Denver. Um, so to give you a bit about what it is, like what is coffee competition? Um, to those who maybe don't know, um, the barista specifically is basically a uh, barista will brew um, espresso so they will uh, make a certain number of specified drinks um, and serve them to a certain number of um, sensory judges who will then evaluate those drinks and then they will also the competitor will also be evaluated by a technical judge who is essentially a shadow just like on their shoulder um, just evaluating all of the things that they do while they're making their drinks um, and how did I get into that I'll be very honest with you I had zero in tensions of ever it never even entered my sphere um in 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 terms of in terms of either competing um or judging and this kind of ties in a little bit with like the the kind of potentially the elitist nature or the seemingly elitist nature of like craft slash third wave coffee i was aware of coffee competitions i'd seen a couple in london um i'd gone to a couple of trade shows and i think the uk barista championship was on at the time and i would look on in awe like i mean the guys on stage were incredible they'd given these incredibly polished performances they were talking with huge knowledge and creating drinks that i would imagine would be incredible and they were there was me pulling shots on a manual machine with brandless beans and just knocking out 800 drinks a day and there was us and there were these guys on stage and they were just up there and they were basically operating in another industry as far as i knew you know what i mean like and so i just assumed that's what coffee competition was and so i had zero real interest in it other than i kind of paid attention via sprudge and and like barista magazine and like who was winning and things like that i took an interest in that um but i never thought about competing let alone judging because obviously to judge you surely have to have a background in competing right that's how it works Fast forward to 2018, um, Intermixed Beverage, we throw a, have a throwdown every year. Um, and we had, I organized the first throwdown there in May of 2018. Um, and we distribute La Mazzocco Espresso Machines, as I said. And we got a judge called Ryan Wilbur, a guy called Ryan Wilbur, to come and judge our competition at so the time. Coffee celebrity. Coffee it's celebrity. A, it's a real thing. Absolute coffee legend. <laughs> um, and we, he was at the time working for La Mazzocco, um, now of Cafe Imports. And so we got him, we got him uh, to come and, come and be a celebrity judge uh, at our throwdown. And while, before the throwdown started, we, I was just chatting with him. I hadn't really spoken to him much before that point. And he kind of asked me, I, he asked about my background. We were just talking like you did to me, asked my background in coffee. And he asked if I'd ever considered judging. And I was just like, oh no, I've never competed. And he sort of said to me, well, that, that doesn't matter. You've got a good palate, you know, espresso. And I'm like, well, yeah. And he's like, yeah, you could, you could compete, look into it. I was like, huh, 
So I did. Um, to give you like very briefly the background of Ryan Wilber, I mean, he's competed at uh, US finals. I can't remember exactly where he placed, but he placed highly a number of times. In the barista. In the barista. And then in recent times, he's been judging for years now. And now he's, he's a world certified, so he's judged the world barista championships as well. So, I mean, his judging credentials are incredible. So when someone with those credentials tells you, yeah, you could judge... You think, oh, I'll look into oh, that. Yeah, maybe oh. I'll look into that a little bit more. Yeah. Yeah, and then think, okay. Yeah. So I did a little bit of research. I looked into it. And lo and behold, I wasn't aware of like, they. I think it may have been that year or it may have been the year before, but they kind of changed the structure of things so that we have what are called preliminaries and then you have qualifiers and then you have finals. Mm-hmm. So the US finals. And the preliminaries, as it turns out, are an awesome event. Okay, They're there to give people essentially a taste of of what competition can be, both competitor and judge. And so I wrote, I applied to Denver uh, because I really wanted to go and visit Sweet Bloom Coffee in Denver. (laughs) Uh, And then I sent uh, like a, probably a page long letter as well, just being like, hey, I've got zero experience for competition. Never even been to one in the US, but I would love to come and help out in some way. And I originally asked to be a technical judge because I wasn't necessarily confident in my sensory skills at the time, like I said to Explain you. Explain the difference quickly. Yeah, between sure. Technical and so the technical judge is, like I said, you basically you hang over the shoulder of the competitor and you have your score sheet that you're, you're making marks on as the competitor is going. And there are vast number of um, categories that you're um, assessing them on are yes and no. So do they wipe uh, clean and dry the inside of their portafilter before grinding coffee into it? Um, how much coffee are they wasting? Okay, so like grounds falling out of the basket. Um, are they wiping their steam wand? Are they flushing their steam wand? We're like, yes, no, yes, no. And I was like, I can do that. I, I, I know that side of things to a degree. With the intention of like getting your foot in the door. Yeah. Let's at least do yeah, one. Yeah, let's do that. And yeah. I mean, I, I didn't know whether I'd be any good at it, whether I'd enjoy it. But I, So long story short, they, they said, yeah, sure. So I went, uh, traveled down to Denver, met the guys down there. Um, and there wasn't a space as a technical judge, but they were like, you can be a century judge. And I'm like, Okay, <laughs> I could be a sensory judge. I can't be a sensory judge, but well, just, I'll try and bluff my way through it. I was like, I'll just try and try and, and, and make things up. Turns out that actually, my whole expectation and my whole understanding of how a barista competition is judged from a sensory perspective was completely skewed. I had zero understanding, um, and I think, and this is a bigger subject that we can, may or may not want to go into but I think that's a, something that's shared by a lot of people even if they do understand judging okay from a sensory perspective what we are doing is we are evaluating let's talk about espresso we're talking about espresso mm-hmm. that's put in front of us we are evaluating that espresso on the quality of the espresso shot my thought process prior to being a judge was that as a sensory judge I would sip that espresso and be like how good is this it's quite good I will score it X out of 10, hmm. you know? And I think that quite a lot of people potentially share that view. That is my view yeah. right now at this moment. Yeah, that, that could not be further from the case. Really? Yeah, okay. Because another criticism that is aimed at barista competitions as a whole, and I've heard this spoken by some pretty influential people in the coffee industry, okay, is that it's not representative of the role of the barista in a professional environment. Okay, there are elements which you could I could potentially agree with that. But as a whole, it is very much representative. But unless you understand how the sensory judges are scoring it, I think it gets lost. And so I'll talk about how we actually do evaluate. Mm -hmm. Okay, 
So when a competitor is making their espresso shot, you will hear them give a performance and they will give you a story and they will talk about their journey through coffee. A lot of people will. The judges are exhausted by the number of journeys we go on because everyone tells you about their journey. Um, and they will talk about their experience with coffee and then they will talk about the espresso and they will talk about their recipe, their brew ratio for making that espresso. But then they will also give us the flavor notes of that espresso. And they will also give us the tactile notes of that espresso. Tactile being like the body and the mouthfeel, okay? They will give those, and they will be very deliberate in what they give. As a sensory judge, what I am evaluating, on, evaluating them on, amongst other things, the sheet is quite extensive, but I'm evaluating them on the flavor notes they give me in comparison to what I experience. Hmm. So I'm not saying, is this good or bad? That is irrelevant, okay? In my opinion, I might hate it. But if they give me sensory notes, flavor notes, um, that are pretty unique, um, very specific, um, and they hit them all, they're going to score highly, so, okay? So in theory, and this is, I don't want to drill too much, Yeah. but in theory, if I'm a barista competitor, would it be more advantageous to get a super unique, weird espresso with really odd tasting notes one that comes to mind is like jeff and i had this fully washed coffee from the congo and oh, yeah. it had this metallic lemon to it oh didn't like it <laughs> we were drinking it going we but we're both sitting there drinking i don't like this but this is the most unique coffee i had so in theory if i was to give you a shot a mm -hmm. shot of espresso and yep. one of my tasting notes is metallic lemon and you're like this is not good tasting but that tasting note is dead on. So there is a category that I didn't mention that comes on the score sheet comes before that is taste balance. Okay. <laughs> and so in taste balance, what we are evaluating, we're looking at acidity, sweetness, um, and bitterness. Hmm. Okay. I will say that when I, going way back into the conversation, when I was talking about the vocabulary, about learning how to evaluate from a sensory perspective and how to talk to people and communicate with people, taste balance has been by far and away like the best thing that I have learned is how to talk about coffee from acidity, sweetness, and bitterness. Because I can take uh, someone who's been working in coffee for two weeks, and I can take an owner of a coffee company who've been working for 20 years, and the three of us can have an espresso shot, share it, and if we use those three categories, we can talk about it on a very, very even keel. Like we can be on the same school sheet and talking about it. And I've opened people, I opened my eyes, and I've opened people's eyes to just approaching things from that because you can suddenly start to break it down in a very accessible way. How do you communicate acidity? This is one I have trouble with yeah. because people in coffee, acidity is not a bad thing. But if you are just a coffee drinker, mm -hmm. and I was to ask you, do you want a coffee with a lot of acidity or with very little acidity? I think most people are going to say, I don't want any acidity mm -hmm. in my coffee. And then you're like, but then it'll be overbearingly sweet. How do you communicate acidity, especially in espresso? Because yep. espresso be can become so overpowering. Yeah. Um, so something that we look for as judges as well is we're not just looking for, so in taste balance, so we are looking for it to be well balanced. And that doesn't mean that they're all the same. So it doesn't mean that we've got you know, a medium level of acidity, sweetness, and bitterness. It will be perfect. What we're also assessing is the quality. Quality then is, is fairly subjective. So there is an element of subjectivity mm -hmm. here, right? What do we mean by quality? Well, I've had, I've had espresso shots where there is a citric acid. Most of the acid in espresso generally comes at the beginning of our experience of tasting. And I've had espresso shots where there is a citric acid start. But the quality of that citric acid has not been good. And it's like sucking on a bitter lemon. Mm -hmm. Like it's unpleasant. It's tart. The quality of that is not good. But 
I've also had espresso shots, I've had plenty, where there is also a citric acid, but the quality is good. It's a pleasant citric acid. Maybe it's lemon, but it might be leaning more towards orange because it's supported by some nice sweetness afterwards, okay? And so that citric acid note isn't necessarily a bad thing. It just needs to be it needs to be of good quality. And that is where the skill of the barista comes in. Under-extracted coffee typically is acidic forward. It's not balanced out by the sweetness and the bitterness at the back end. And we do need that bitterness. Bitterness is a desirable attribute if the quality is good and it is there to a degree that hmm. complements what came before it. Bitterness is not bad, and especially in, in espresso. Quite often, the shots that we taste at judging that don't score well are too acidic forward. They're all acidic and they're not balanced out by the back end. And I think this actually comes down to coffee culture or third wave culture from quite a few years ago, from three, four years ago. There was a tendency to pull everything ristretto. Like everything came out at like 20 grams, 21 grams on our yield. And that produced a lot of under-extracted shots. And mm. I still have quite a lot of under-extracted shots when I go places where I get this punch of citric acid and malic acid sometimes as well that hits you. And then you might get some sweetness if you're lucky, but you don't really get anything afterwards and you're left with this kind of unpleasant feel in our mouth. And that's under-extracted espresso. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's like that's such a characteristic thing of third wave where yep. uh, the, the downside of it, where uniqueness and intensity is valued over actual experience. I, I would say I agree with you and I, I, I understand it as yeah. well. So I don't want to be down on that. It's right? cool. I, I, it's exactly. <laughs> I get why it happened. Um, I think this actually ties into exactly what I said to you. You asked me when my God moment was in terms of it and I told you it was when I experienced that acidity up front mm -hmm. in an espresso shot because I hadn't had that before. Because you just go this can And you're like, whoa, yeah, yeah. like what is this? Yeah. And I'm experiencing it and it's like, cool. But then you still want it to taste good, right? We don't want it just to hit us with lemon and taste like potpourri. Mm -hmm. I mean, I want it to do other things as well. And this is where the skill of the barista really comes into it. The barista will work with their coffee. So let's skip past prelims because prelims, they have um, coffee that they have to use. Yeah, so let's, let's before we skip yeah, prelims, yeah, let's yeah. go back to your Denver experience. Yeah, sure. Already I'm surprised that it's not just how good is that shot of espresso, yeah. it's how closely can they identify it, included with quality. Yeah. What else was the rest of the experience of judging like as a sensory judge? So you have espresso, then what? So in preliminaries, you have espresso and then we have milk-based drinks. Yeah, I think a few years ago... Do they choose their coffees for preliminaries? Exactly that. They don't. Okay. At prelims, it's all like literally you can just turn up. Well, you register and it's like 40 bucks, I think, 40, 50 bucks to register. And then you can just turn up and go. They have a choice of three coffees. So a minimum of three coffees. So the day before competition, all the competitors will get to cup coffees. They're not told about the roaster. Um, I believe, and I, I need to, I want to get this right, but I believe they're told origin, altitude and process. I think that's all the information they're given. They cut those coffees and then they get to choose. And they can actually choose to make a blend if they want to, hmm. but they get to choose their coffee that they work with. And then they're given X amount of pounds. I think it's like two or three pounds of coffee to use for the entire weekend. They then get a dial-in period. So they'll have a practice period of 30 minutes, between 30 minutes and an hour to dial in that coffee on equipment that is provided for them. Okay. Um, everything is provided. Smallwares are provided, although they can bring their own pitcher. They can bring their own tamper if they want to, but that's all provided for them. They get to dial in that coffee. In that dial-in process, they're trying to identify flavor notes. They're trying to identify tactile notes, and they're trying to make it taste good, right? The next day they've got their competition, they're then going to go through a performance which they will probably have prepared, although for preliminaries, there's only so far you can prepare because you don't know what coffee you're mm -hmm. using, right? 
This is where the skill of the barista comes in. Because the day before, right, they had their half an hour to dial in that coffee and maybe they got um, flavor notes of, they maybe got like Seville orange and they maybe got some, some molasses and they maybe got like the sweetness of some berry in there. So let's say blueberry for, for one of anything else. Well, then the next day, prior to the competition, they have a period of setup and it's like a 10 or 15 minute period before their performance where they have to dial in their coffee again, okay? There is a high possibility that they will taste that and the flavor notes might have changed. And so they need to be able to adapt, okay? They need to be able to dial that in in a very short period of time using very little waste because they have a finite amount of coffee to use. And they need to be able to communicate to the judges or the customer, if we want to put it in a professional environment, the expectation of what they're going to get in that shop. Now, I'm not saying for one second that every barista should be communicating to every customer all of those things. That would be outrageous and boring and I wouldn't want that myself. But if you've got a customer who does display some interest, like go, who is like, hey, what is this I'm tasting? Like, this is crazy. That you want a barista to be able to really engage with them mm. because they will become a very, very valuable customer for you. And so in competition, that barista needs to be able to communicate those things to us, but they also need to be flexible enough to recognize when their flavor notes have changed. They need to be skilled enough to dial in to a point where the quality is still there. And so as a judge, I am looking for the flavor notes that are given to me. So as a judge, it's tough. Um, one of the hardest things as a new judge is, is writing or writing, but taking on board all of the information that is being given to me that I have to make an assessment on. We try and engage all of our baristas with eye contact and smiles. And so if they're in front of me, I don't look down at my clipboard and write down everything they're telling me. I just smile and look up to them because I want them to feel relaxed because they're obviously very nervous. But I'm also trying to like scribble down or like keep in mind all the things I'm being told. So I'm evaluating them on whether they hit those flavor notes. I'm evaluating them on the quality of those flavor notes. In the rules, and this is important, the flavor notes should support specialty coffee. So to come back to what you said, like the metallic lemon, <laughs> does the metallic taste in espresso support something that's desirable in a in specialty coffee i'm not sure it necessarily does like if a competitor gave me flavor notes of burnt plastic leather and and grass they might hit all of them right <laughs> but that's not desirable necessarily yeah. right so they wouldn't necessarily score that high but if they give us the flavor notes like i said before so like like a seville orange and some good flavor notes and they hit all of them they're going to score pretty well but the more specific they can get so if they were just to say orange Okay, hmm. I might go, huh, they got orange there. But you know, I know, we all know, right, that if you have a kumquat, which is a tiny little orange, and like a blood orange, the experience of eating those is very, very different. Mm -hmm. If you have a some nice, juicy, sweet Seville orange, it's very, very different to the other two. So I would want my competitor to go that extra step and tell me which one of those it is. Um, same goes for all of those flavor notes. We can really break it down and get very, very specific. And I'm really looking for them to do that. Mm -hmm. Cool. So, um, so you do that for the espresso part. Is that also how it's done in the milk portion as well? To a degree, yeah. Mm -hmm. We're looking for flavor notes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, and so from preliminary, that's the first time you've ever judged. Mm -hmm. uh, where do you go from there? You're instantly hooked or is it like, ah, I need to go back and learn more or is it like, I'm all in? I At that point then, I was like, I definitely need to do this again. Um, and so I sent, again, I sent an email to qualifiers and be like, I would love to do this if I can. Um and then I signed up to qualifiers to judge at qualifiers. There were two qualifiers held that year, one in Denver, one in Nashville. I applied for the Denver one because I'd already met 
quite a few people there and something that cannot be overlooked in these things is networking it's just like meeting really cool people mm -hmm. um and i've met some cool people there the head judges um at denver were awesome um i learned so much from them and i kind of wanted to hook up hook back up with them again so i could really like progress in my judging and so i went to qualifiers and qualifiers is different to preliminaries it's a big step up for the competitor because this time they are sourcing their own coffee they're also, they're doing espresso, but they're not doing milk drinks. Um, they were doing signature beverages. That has changed this year, FYI. Um, they're doing, now at qualifiers, they're do, still doing espresso and milk-based drinks. Um, but last year, they were doing signature beverages. So no more signature beverages? Signature beverages is in finals. So oh, at finals, okay. they do all three. So at finals, they're doing espresso, milkies, don't, I hate the word milkies, but we call them milkies sometimes. Uh, <laughs> milk I, I, don't like, I don't like that either. <laughs> the funny thing is no one likes it, but we all say it. Um, so we're doing espresso-based drinks, uh, milk-based drinks, and signature beverage in finals. In finals, okay. Um, but they this year, they're just doing milk-based uh, in qualifiers. Hmm. So I did qualifiers in Denver, um, and there was a definite step up. And that then is when the competitor can start to really put their own stamp on things because they can practice their performance. They've got their coffee months in advance potentially i mean i don't know but they've had a lot of time to work with that coffee but it still very much tests their skill as a barista because they have been practicing with that coffee right for however long beforehand but that coffee changes in its flavor profile and you touched on this when you were talking about flavor notes on coffee bags mm -hmm. and i'm a big i know flavor notes in coffee but i also share your kind of it's Strange seeing it on a bag, perhaps, because it doesn't ring true. To my mm. experience, it can be a guide, but it's it was those flavor notes were probably decided at the cupping table. Right. And that in itself is a different way of brewing coffee. So depending mm. on your brew, it's going to change anyway. The length of time post-roast is going to affect those flavors anyway. There are so many variables that are going to affect those that the words on the bag, I'm not going to say they're meaningless, because I can still say if it's a lot of citric, flavor notes on there it's going to give me an idea that i'm expecting quite an acidic forward coffee um but the flavor note itself kind of falls away somewhat yeah and so this competitor who going back to qualifiers who's been practicing with this coffee they have to be able to be flexible and understand that that coffee is going to change in its flavor notes so whilst you may have an underlying that coffee may have an underlying orange note to it um there's a coffee i love which is the ticker ambessa by intelligentsia and there's beautiful orange forward citric notes. And no matter how I brew it, it's always got this orangey note, but the intensity of the orange changes. Mm -hmm. And I could potentially change my descriptor for that type of orange, depending on the, the number of weeks post or days post roast and, and, and the brew process. So that competitor really needs to be able to be flexible in their flavor notes, but they also have to be very consistent or flexible in how they're dialing in that coffee. And I heard an interview with... Um, an incredible competitor last year um, called Emily Orendorf. Um, I think she finished sixth. She was on the Glitter Cat program as well. Shout out to Glitter Cat, doing great stuff. Um, but I heard an interview with her on, I believe it was Barista Boss, Boss Barista. It's a, it's a podcast you should check out. And she talked about this espresso that she'd been working with and how she'd had underlying flavors, the whole way of working with it. But they kind of changed a bit. But like on the day of her performance in finals, it may, I think it was in finals, it just changed. And she had this performance, this whole script that she had written out, but she had to throw in these new words into there and be flexible and, and change how she did things according to what happened there. And I'm not sure if there's a bigger test of a barista than that, is being able to use the same coffee, but understand that it changes 
and communicate to a customer slash judge of those changes and yeah. be flexible. Well, that's I think. even a bigger argument against very specific tasting notes. And yep. That's why I've always been yep. against specific in te- you know tasting notes with very specific, very detailed. It is this exact thing because it changes so much. Yeah. And and so hearing all this, uh, someone that hears this, it's like, oh, this sounds cool. It sounds fun. I like definitely sounds like a great place to be. But, but, but like, what's the point? It's like, what's the, what's the point of doing competitions in coffee? Because we're talking about just one aspect here. Uh, last year I competed in coffee tasters, did terribly, Jeff did really well, but there's also coffee and good spirits, which is Mm -hmm. basically coffee and booze, coffee cocktails. Uh, and then there is a brewer's cup, which is essentially brewing the best cup of coffee in, you know, best being very subjective. And then there's one I'm missing. Roasters. Roasters. Which is, again, you know, so some of these make sense. Yeah. Cup tasters. It's yeah. like, who can taste coffee the best? Mm-hmm. That makes sense. And you go, Brewer's Cup, pretty subjective. So there's some debates there. Roasters, same thing. But for barista, it's it's kind of like, what is, what is the point? What I, do you think is the intention? And what are the benefits? And then are there potential pitfalls of doing something like this? I mean, that... It, you, it's a good question, and I, I again, I've, I've mentioned, I think there's been some pushback on competition in general, but on barista competition, from ex-competitors, um, who in a fairly public way have kind of spoken about, like, they don't really care for competition now. Um, I think a lot of it comes down to a lack of understanding, and I think this is a criticism that could potentially be thrown at the coffee competition itself or the barista competition itself. I'm not sure there's a huge amount of transparency in what the judges are judging. So I can speak for speak from experience from sitting in the crowd at the finals. So I judged US finals um, this year in Kansas City. Um, but I was a new judge. I wasn't expecting to be there and to get selected. It was a real honor. And I, I, I was stoked just to have the experience. But I only judged three competitors. And then for the two days after that, because it goes on for a number of days, I, I got the privilege of sitting in the crowd. And I sat there for pretty much the whole thing. And I was sitting around people who had zero experience competing or judging. And they're making assessments on what they... They can only make an assessment on what they see on stage. And so you had some competitors who were incredibly confident, who were able to communicate in a wonderfully empathetic, warm, brilliant way their experience with coffee and what the judges should expect. And they just killed it, you know? They just nailed it. And you were just like, wow. And then they didn't get through the first round. Okay? And their competitors, uh, the people in the audience were left scratching their head. It was like, well, well, they I thought they were much better than such and such who just got through there. And it's like, well, because the judges were given flavor notes, they were given a tactile, um, and they scored it, and they went backstage, and they will, you have a deliberation. So you spend about 20 minutes, 15 minutes, talking as a group of judges, and we calibrate, and we look at our scores, and we really kind of get it to a degree where there's no kind of crazy outliers out there. And if there is, we have a good discussion about our experiences. The head judge tastes everybody's coffee, every judge's coffee. So the head judge has a good outlier understanding of what each judge tasted, okay? There's a huge amount of, not deliberation, but there's a huge amount of steps to make sure that the scores are as accurate and as reflective of what the judges experienced as possible. If you're in the audience watching this, or if you're even, it's streamed live on the internet, if you're watching this on the internet, you don't know any of that. Like, all you get is that guy or that girl was incredible in the way that they delivered stuff and they didn't go through, you know? And I think that is a problem. How do we solve that one? 
I don't know. I don't think you can give people access to what the judges are doing backstage. Mm-hmm. It's unfair for the score sheets to be put out there. Um, I think maybe just more transparency, like I've just done mm-hmm. now, something like this would help that. How big of a factor is the presentation of it? The actual enthusiasm? Is there something like enthusiasm? So there's, enthusiasm or- there is one section at the beginning, which is something along the lines of, and I can't remember off the top of my head, presentation and professionalism. Mm-hmm. And it scores into that. It is a very small percentage of the overall score. A very small percentage of the overall score. If you do incredibly in that, like kudos to you, but if your coffee is off point, you are not going to do well. Mm. Coffee is the overriding and important thing. It is important that you communicate because we do want to see you as a represent, the winner of USBC is is held up as a representative of, of the industry as a whole in terms of specialty coffee. And so they do need to be able to communicate effectively, but that's part and parcel of being a barista Hmm. i think you can speak to this i mean your best hospitality experiences in coffee shops is when you've had a a great coffee but b you've had a very nice warm hospitality experience where the baristas met you at where you want to be Mm -hmm. i.e you want to talk a lot they can talk back to you and communicate the coffee if you just want to go in there and order a coffee and be like how's your day great they've met you there too you know that's that being a professional barista Mm -hmm. is reading your customer and being able to do that and so it's important in competition for sure but that it, it's a tiny percentage of the overall. It's a tiny percentage of the overall. Hmm. The coffee is what we're really evaluating on and is what someone's going to score highly on. I think So I think that's one. Like, what's the point? Well, why do people feel that way? Like, what's the point? Well, I think that's one. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, that's a criticism that I hear fired at it, and I think that's where that criticism comes from. Um, I think it's important because, I mean, to go back to what I've said, like, it's given me an ability to communicate coffee from a sensory perspective that has enabled my training and my ability to operate as a trainer um it, i've i've increased massively my ability to do that effectively has just jumped up by so much mm-hmm. because i'm able to talk about espresso specifically but coffee as a whole because this applies to drip too you can still take the same acidity sweetness bitterness we're still looking for that in our drip coffee um my ability to communicate that at a training level has just stepped up so what's the point well we through competition we've created a communal vocabulary a common vocabulary to which we can um to which we can reference and use and and communicate effectively without excluding Mm -hmm. you know it's Mm -hmm. an inclusive language Um, and so i think that's very important there's the networking side of things for sure it creates community Mm -hmm. Uh, you go to these competitions you you went to the one in nashville there's loads of really cool people there who are all there just because they love coffee Mm -hmm. they've got no reason to be there other than they love coffee and they love talking drinking chatting coffee like we're doing now so having the ability to be amongst people who just want to chat about the same thing as you that's great too yeah um but i do think i do think there's some criticism aimed at coffee competition that it all, I think some people feel that you lo- it's maybe almost a little bit corporate. There's some big sponsors in play in, in coffee competition. Um, and I think some people don't necessarily feel comfortable with that. They kind of see it as like almost like a marketing event hmm. for those sponsors. And that baristas um, are basically just spokespeople for these huge coffee companies. Um, and it's basically just a display of uh, an advertisement for them. Um, as opposed to the industry as a whole um, and for the baristas specifically. Um, and I think maybe that's a criticism that is aimed a lot at competition. Hmm. Yeah, I, I see it kind of in two ways. One, I think competition in general is 
what you need to do to get better, whether individually or as a whole. And so I'm a huge advocate for competition in mm -hmm. any way possible, even if it is something as subject, subjective as coffee. And so all these competitions, I'm a huge supporter of. But then there is the side that you go, well, are we competing so intensely about such a specific thing that you've now lost the connection with the everyday coffee drinker? Yeah. And that's what I struggle with with the barista competition because you're looking at something like a shot of espresso like this and it turns into a competition, which is awesome because now we're all pushing each other to do a better job serving and yeah. identifying coffees and picking out these tasting notes. But how does it translate to your everyday cafe because this competition you're preparing three three drinks for three judges and then think back to your days of serving 500 drinks a day mm -hmm. so where do these meet do you think these meet are these two completely separate worlds where, where's kind of the intersection of competition and a real everyday barista in a high volume shop slinging drinks in the morning I mean, it's a it's a very good question, and I think you can make arguments either way, and I think you could probably be correct in either way. Mm -hmm. The the like the very deliberate specificity required to compete in a barista competition is definitely something that we would love to see spread across all cafes, you know. But the reality of business is that you cannot mm -hmm. do that. We need volume. Businesses need volume in order to stay open, right? Um, and you can't be that detail-oriented all of the time in the majority of cases. And so I do get that there's a disconnect. What I would say is a lot of best practice that we now consider best practice in cafes across the world originated in competition. Hmm. Um and it's kind of like anything. It's like the competition as a whole is not what you would expect to see in every cafe. But if one thing, one element of preparing espresso or one idea that a barista brings to competition that makes people go, hey, whoa, look at that. That works its way down into cafe level. Well, that's a value, right? That's mm -hmm. undeniably of value. And like you said, it makes people better. It makes the competitors better. But then all the people who are in the audience are watching that and they will pick up on things that the baristas are doing. Um, some of the baristas kind of almost start to gain celebrity status. <laughs> Mr. Wilbur that we spoke about earlier, you know, like... And so people look up to them. And if they're doing things a certain way, we'll start to see those things echoed in cafes too. Um, the prime example of this is the Malkonig EK43 grinder. Mm -hmm. um, the Malkonig EK43 grinder has been around, it was a spice grinder originally. It's been around for years, like 20, 30 years, a long, long time. And it was then adopted as a coffee grinder, as a bulk grinder. But it wasn't ubiquitous. Like, it wasn't like it is now where, like, every shop just has an EK, right? Are you a coffee shop? Yes, then you have an EK43. It was never like that. Uh, there's an Australian competitor called Matt Perger. Perger, Perger. I've never heard it said out loud, so I apologize, Matt. Um, but in, I believe it was 2011, he used an EK43 to make espresso, to grind espresso, okay? At the time, people... Would have, if you'd said that before that, people would have just looked to you like you were crazy. But he did it, and I believe he won, or at least he placed very highly. I should know that, but I forget. And he then talked about afterwards the the um, TDS levels, the total dissolved 
solid percentages that he was achieving using an EK for espresso. And it was insane, right? It was, it was more than we were achieving or anyone was achieving with espresso grinders at the time. Lo and behold, let's move on like eight years and like half the shops have got EK43s and they're pulling espresso shots on them, okay? Well, the EK43 is not the best grinder and Matt has actually wrote, written articles about this that it's not great for espresso. In the majority of cases, he would not recommend you use an EK43 for this. But just him using it was enough to influence people to do it. And what, it may not be the best, but what I love is that people were trying. Mm. People were playing with it. People were exploring things and trying to see what they could do. And that is how the industry as a whole progresses. We try things. A lot of them won't work. A lot of them fall by the wayside. But the things that do work are what push us forward. Mm. That's what moves us forward. Um, and competition is the breeding ground for that because it's a microscope. It's a microscope on for the competitor to really take time out of their nine to five shift on the bar, just sling an espresso. They need to take time out to practice and to really focus on what it is they're doing. And they rarely get afforded the time to do that. And so they will just improve as a result of that. And then it becomes a microscope when it's on stage because suddenly we are allowed to look at the barista in a detail that we don't do in a shop necessarily because we just come in there to do our work or to chat mm -hmm. or to, you know, just to have a coffee and walk out again. Whereas when they're on stage, we're then able to evaluate every little thing that they're doing and so we will improve as well if we're baristas or if we're an owner of a shop, we'll be like, hey, look at that, they're purging. My baristas don't purge every every time with their steam wand. Well, I mean, now they absolutely should be and every shop should should be doing that. When I started in 2003, like honestly, our steam wands were disgusting. Like we didn't even wipe them clean. And and the, it just wasn't something that was in, it, was, it wasn't in our common knowledge. Yeah. And and competition has done that. It's It, it just moves things forward. I think that's a great place to end it. I think it is um, as well. So if I'm someone, whether casually interested or very into coffee, but never even thought about judging, what would the first step you would recommend somebody take? Preliminaries. preliminaries. So look for preliminaries. So right now we're just about to enter qualifiers. So prelims for this year are over. I say this year mm -hmm. for the 2020 championships are over. Um, the final, the qualifiers are in Sumner in Washington and Nashville, and then finals are in Portland, and I believe in March, might be February actually, and then prelims for the 2021 season will start in August, but they'll release dates, and don't quote me on this, but this year they were released in June. So the US Coffee Championships website is the place to go. Follow them on Twitter as well, um, and if you fancy judging. If you've got any experience tasting coffee at all, you can judge, okay? You can judge. You will have people there who can really help you out, head judges that can really guide you and help you with the experience. Um, so keep your eyes peeled on that website. And when the dates are released, find the location that is closer to you. There are 10 preliminaries all over the US, or at least there have been for the last two years. Find the location that's nearest to you. Um, apply, but I would also strongly recommend putting like a little letter in there or email in there just saying how excited you are mm. to do it. I always recommend that for yeah. anything is writing, writing letters um, and just go into it at the prelim level and see whether you like it. Yeah. See whether you A, like it, B, find it enjoyable. Um, and if you do, then you'll probably just stay in it forever. Yeah. So I think I will. <laughs> I, yeah, I've also heard people will just volunteer too. Yeah, for sure. That's a great like, thing. Either I'm not qualified, I, I yeah. have no coffee background, but I want to be a part of it. Yeah. I've seen people just volunteer and just whatever you need me for, yeah. I'm there to help. I just want to see how it all goes down. And that's a great way to meet people. Too. Absolutely. Like the volunteers, sorry, I should I shout out to all of the volunteers yeah. who are like clearing cups and, and just generally helping out. Like the, the, the competitions wouldn't function without them. Yeah. And that is a, a great way to get into it. If you feel you don't have the coffee background even, you can kind of 
be there. That's like you start of a Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Speak to the judges and, and, and they can help you through it. Awesome. Dude, thank you so much for coming in. This uh, is man, awesome. it was my pleasure. Thank We're you. At, uh, hour 16, believe Woo. it or not. So uh, <laughs> that's a great place to end. I really appreciate you coming, man. Thanks, man. Yeah. Let's see if I can actually pause it now.